Okay, hello everybody, today is Wednesday, and welcome to this special presentation of Black Box Online Radio. First, you can see our good friend Harold K. Snook there reminding us that every Monday on Black Box Online Radio is Zodiac Monday, and every Friday isn't anything goes where any subject is fair game. On Wednesdays in the past, I used to do the AMA, the Ask Me Anything, where I would respond to your questions and comments. And this year on the channel, I did a segment about the Long Island serial killer on Wednesdays, and recently I've been doing one about the Phantom Killer, but all of that stuff is going to have to wait until next week. To those of you who simply cannot hear enough about the Zodiac Killer, you are in luck, because on Wednesday and Friday of this week, I'm going to be doing a two-part book discussion on Motor Spirit by Jared Kobach. And part one, of course, is today, and part two will be out on Friday. And if you would like to follow along with all of these true crime discussions, I invite you to like and subscribe to Black Box Online Radio. And you can always look out for some bonus episodes that come out on the weekend. I was trying to do some new video series. Yes, I mean video for the channel. But with um, this uh, subject, multiple people had requested that... I should do an episode about Jared Kobach and his two books out on the Zodiac Killer. And I am now in possession of both of them. And I purchased them from Amazon.com, and they came together. And you'll see that one of them has the green cover called Motor Spirit, and the other one has the red cover called How to Find Zodiac. And I picked up the red one first, and I read the first two chapters, and then it strongly gave an indication that I should read Motor Spirit first, so I decided to have a quick read-through with this one. And just a final announcement, that I will um, also be getting back into some other book discussions on the channel with the story of Stephen Avery and Making a Murderer. There are two books that I'm really hoping to finish in the near future. One of them is called Illusion of Justice by Jerry Buting, who was one of the defense counsels in the Making a Murderer story. Defense counsel for Stephen Avery, that was, and I am also in the possession of a book called Convicting Avery. So, those will be some new future episodes for the Anything Goes segment on Friday. And in addition to liking and subscribing, if anybody is interested in other ways that they can help the channel, they can go to the description box and find the buymeacoffee.com page, and that allows you to make a donation or contribution to help the show. For things such as purchasing true crime books or equipment, anything is welcome and appreciated, and all contributors will get a shout-out on Zodiac Monday. One more time, buymeacoffee.com slash blackboxnet88, but the easiest way to find it is to click on the link in the description box. I can't say that Jarrett Kobeck has the best reputation in the world, because a lot of people have been talking about his books since they've come out, and they don't say the most favorable things. And I was coming into this with not only a degree of skepticism, but I also thought that I wasn't going to like them. And as I said, I picked up How to Find Zodiac first, the red one, and I read the first two chapters, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I was like, okay, I can see why people are curious about what he has to say. I can see why people like his presentation. There's a particular type of flow to his writing, and it's um, engaging. It makes you want to know what's going to happen next. It makes you want to know what's going to happen on the next page. So I definitely give credit to Jared Kobach in that respect. But then, 
because I wanted to read Motor Spirit first, I can see why there are a lot of criticisms from other Zodiac researchers about Jared Kobach and his books. He has been accused of being a grifter, writing these books purely for profit, talking about far-out, wacky ideas and stitching them together with bizarre sentence structures. And he's also been accused of talking about ideas that don't have an enormous amount of merit. Not to mention that he does talk about things in a roundabout way. There is definitely this almost poetic, free verse style that he uses in his writing. And I'm looking forward to getting back to the Red Book because I want to see how that one's going. Because it has almost a more polished and a more fashioned way of presenting the material, in the first two chapters anyway. But let's look at Motor Spirit by Jarrett Kobach, and let's see what we can find in the first introductory segments. Final reminder is that this is not a traditional book review. This is just going to be a book discussion where I pull out some ideas that I have found in the first half of the book and respond to them. But on page 16, Jared Kobach begins by discussing the Zodiac Killer's first crime, the Lake Herman Road murders, which occurred on December 20th of 1968. And as I said, there is a particular flow to his writing. It's almost as if you have to imagine that you're smoking a cigarette and drinking some, like, whiskey out of a glass while you're reading this, because that's the way... Th that's the voice that you get in your mind, as if you were just talking to an auditorium filled with people who were listening, and they're just waiting for you to say every single word. Because I'll give you um, an example of what I'm talking about, page 16. David and Betty Lou are in the Rambler. David's got the engine and the heat on. Outside it's 22 degrees Fahrenheit, and they've got the front seat reclined. It can be assumed that they are engaging in what people call heavy petting. The old adolescent fumbling, as they live so close to San Francisco, ground zero for American hedonism. We should assume that this petting is frighted with a new set of hang-ups. Ten years earlier, the concern would have been about whether or not Betty Lou was going to be seen as an easy girl. Now, thanks to the relentless media coverage, it's the opposite. Everybody's doing it. But are these Californian teens doing it the right way? And when I was, like, reading that the first time, I was even given some warnings about this, but when I was reading it the first time, I was like, is that really necessary? And furthermore, there were no witnesses to the Lee Carmen Road murders. What kind of heavy petting was actually oh, witnessed by the killer? I mean, it's an unsolved murder mystery. And for all we know, David and Betty Lou may have just been talking. They might have just been sitting in the car and talking, and I'll share some reasons why that could be a possibility later on. I said, though, um, if he wants to have the sole mission of getting your attention, he succeeds in that right. The next thing that um, Jared Kobach is going to say is that the Zodiac Killer is going to approach them, and he's going to say, get out of the car. I can do a better voice than that. Get out of the car. Get out of the car now. And then the man is actually going to walk to the driver's side, but the driver's side door is going to be locked. Then he's going to walk back to the passenger side and say, get out of the car. Out now. Out now through the right door. No one gets hurt. The boy stays in the car. Wait. Now the boy. Come out. 
and that's his um, whole plan, then interestingly, Jarrett Kopak wants to challenge the narrative that the Zodiac would lay out. He would talk about how he approached David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen with a flashlight that had been taped to the barrel of a twenty two caliber firearm. This is something that the Zodiac would reveal in his early correspondences, but Jarrett Kopak makes the analytical statement that the Zodiac was lying about the way he approached David Faraday and Petty Lou Jensen, and he most likely did not tape a pencil flashlight to the gun. And on page 57, um, there is an explanation that's been provided here. Read again the text about the pencil light. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or a ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three to six inches across. When taped to the gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them with as if it was a water hose, and there was no need for gun sights. What Jarrett Kobach proposes is that this did not come from the killer's actual experience. Instead, it was something that was borrowed from the 1967 edition of Popular Science. There's an article entitled, Can New Non-Lethal Weapons Control Riots? And was written by Earl Stanley Gardner, the man who created Perry Mason. And the, there is a segment of the magazine article that is featured in this book, uh, Motor Spirit. Flashlight Aiming Beam. Still another development in the works is a flashlight revolver that will throw a concentrated beam of light with a small black dot in the exact center. When a button is pressed, the revolver fires a projectile at the exact point covered by the black spot. As matters now stand, an officer making an arrest at night has to hold a flashlight in one hand if needed. If the person arrested has a firearm and tries to use it, the officer must simply do it by feeling the weapon to put a bullet within the circle of light thrown by his flashlight. With the new weapon, the projectile will speed unerringly to the exact point necessary to subdue the prisoner. And I'm not sure if he's uh, the first person to say that or not, but no matter what, he is citing the source about where he thinks that came from. And I think that that is actually somewhat of a consistent statement with a lot of the other claims that will be made about the Zodiac Killer, that the Zodiac Killer is going to be a serial killer who's going to write these taunting letters and ciphers and make phone calls. But the ideas that are shared in these letters and ciphers are not very original. And instead, they are coming from other sources, and he proposes the 1967 edition of uh, Popular Science for the month of December from an article called, Can New Non-Lethal Weapons Control Riots? Next crime that was committed by the Zodiac Killer was the Blue Rock Springs shooting on July 4th of 1969, which saw the death of Darlene Farron. And again, Jared Kobach makes some analytical statements about how he thinks that the same person committed these murders but he was actually learning from his first experience because very famously it's talked about how the car at Lake Herman Road pulled up on the right side of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, although I doubt they were doing their heavy petting, and then at Blue Rock Springs, the perpetrator pulled up behind Mike Majot and Darlene Farron's car and then approached them with a 9mm handgun. Now many people are quick to note that Different firearms were used in the Zodiac Killer's crimes. Does that mean that there were multiple killers? Or why would someone switch from a twenty-two 
caliber gun at Lake Herman Road to the 9mm one, wouldn't a serial killer have some type of connection to the gun that he successfully used in his first crime? Well, the explanation that has been provided by Jared Kobeck is that, um, I'll just read it to you here, shoot them while they're trapped inside and have no chance to run. Don't use a twenty-two caliber hand pistol. Use a 9mm. Use a gun that was meant to kill people. But even Jared points out that, except this gun doesn't. Darlene is a goner, but Michael survives. He's on the ground bleeding and waiting for someone to save him, like in a slow-motion segment from a show from Television Land or a comic book where Superman uses heat vision to cauterize wounds. And, as I said, I think people can recognize that um, there are going to be all sorts of things that are going to be standing out about the types of language that he used in it, uses in this book, and it is completely consistent throughout the first half of Motor Spirit. But it is true that Mike Michaud would survive the Blue Rock Springs shooting, and the um, the victim that would pass away would be Darlene Farron. But what do you make of that statement that the, if the killer parked his car directly behind Mike Michaud and Darlene Farron, then it would have been more difficult for them to run because the victims couldn't have moved to one side and then it would have obstructed the killer's view in some ways and that this is one guy who was learning from his previous crimes? Or do you simply think that that's a fluke or that that means nothing, that wasn't on the killer's mind at all? Or even if they both exited one door and then the killer could have easily shot over the car? What do you make of that? Um, because I'm really 50-50 on that. Part of me thinks that if he had pulled up on the left side or the right side, that wouldn't have been that difficult for him to gain control of the situation. But I do appreciate something that has been shared by Jared Kobach in this book on that note. Now, Mike Majot did survive the shooting, but very famously, he was wearing multiple layers of clothing. If you watch the documentary, this is the Zodiac speaking, he says that he was wearing three pairs of pants because he was very skinny and he was ashamed. Not ashamed, but he was insecure about his skinniness. And the even more shocking thing is that he's actually wearing five different shirts, five different layers to be more precise, on top. And there are a couple um, reasons why people think that. One is that he was a cat burglar or he would break into people's homes and steal items and sell them. And, you know, just like grabbing things and throwing them in a pillowcase. And then he would shed a layer of clothing when he would run around a street corner. So then the witness description would change completely. This book, Motor Spirit, even talks about an additional possibility that that could have been something that was done in case he got in a fight with somebody and they pulled a knife on him and tried to slash him because Mike Majot interacted with some rough types. But also, there was um even a less radical possibility that was discussed by Jared Kobeck, and that is very simply that Mike Majot was telling the truth. He was wearing five shirts and three pairs of pants on the 4th of July when it's over 90 degrees in California because he was very insecure about his skinniness. And Jared Kobeck points out that Kurt Cobain, the frontman for Nirvana, also did that exact same thing. Maybe you've seen Kurt Cobain wearing some sweaters on top of other shirts, and he would wear multiple layers to hide his skinniness. Other people who listen to Black Box Online Radio have stated that they did the same thing when they were younger. And some people actually do the opposite of this. Kevin Smith, the uh, filmmaker, he said that he wears multiple layers to hide 
how fat he is, for lack of a better term. He just openly said, wear black and wear layers, and it, um, well, it doesn't show off and certain features. I think you guys can get the idea. So I don't think that that's the craziest thing in the world, um, the first uh, and the third possibility. I don't know how much Mike Mageau was worried about being slashed with a knife as opposed to uh, something else, and that the five shirts are supposed to protect him from being slashed with a razor blade of some kind. I, I don't know how likely that is, but I suppose anything is possible. Then after the Blue Rock Springs shooting, the Zodiac Killer is going to make a phone call saying that there were two kids shot near a brown car, and they were shot with a 9mm Luger, and he's the one who did it. He also killed those two kids last year. Goodbye. That call that was heard by Nancy Slover, the dispatcher. Okay, so that's the Zodiac inserting himself into the story and making his first taunt. Then, the Zodiac is going to mail a letter talking about some facts that only he and the police knows. He will also send three segments of a cryptogram written in some bizarre coded message format, which would be solved by Donald and Betty Hardin. When you take the three parts of the cipher and arrange it in a particular order, it becomes a simple substitution cipher. And um, just Jared Kobeck wrote out the solution for us on page 59. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's more fun than hunting wild game in the forest, because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill gives me the most thrilling experience. It's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and the blank that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. E-B-O-R-I-E-T-E-M-E-T-H-H-P-I-T-I. And when I was reading this, um, I was really quite curious what Jarrett Kobeck thought about that particular line at the end, which some people call the Z18 code, or the Z18 cipher. Maybe cipher isn't the best word, because some people think that that is absolutely meaningless. They think that it was intentionally added by the Zodiac, just to start the tradition of, okay, you're going to solve some of his clues, but you'll never solve the whole thing. And also, they think that it was meant to keep people guessing until the end of time. Then there are other people who think that it was a mistake, that some way, somehow, he made a mistake with his cryptography. And as I said, the blank, like that I have killed would be my slaves in the afterlife, a word is also missing, so something could have been distorted in the message. And then there's another solution to that that is uh, discussed on page 63 here. As the fur dies down, the Chronicle reports on amateur cryptographers convinced that the Z18, although um, I'm paraphrasing, can be rearranged to spell Robert Emmett the Hippie. And um, this is something that I noticed about Jared Kobach, that he seems very keen to point out other people's BS because... Robert is spelled O-R-B-O-R-O, excuse me, well, I can't read, that was a messed up moment. Robert is spelled R-O-B-E-R-T-E-M-M-E-T-T-H-E-H-I-P-P-I-E. And you might be noticing some things if you've seen the Z18 code before, that the letters there are insufficient. To spell out Robert Emmett the hippie, the actual solution is Robert Emmett, but 
Emmet is spelled E-M-E-T, not E-M-M-E-T, the way that some people theorized, and, well, I have a whole episode on Robert Emmet as a clue in the Zodiac Killer mystery. It's one of the old black box recordings, and I would invite you to listen to that. But what I think is um, very interesting is that Jared Kobach seems like someone who is paying very close attention. Now, I would like to ask you this as a challenge question. At some point, some way, somehow, in the Zodiac Killer mystery, have you ever heard a theory from somebody, or a hypothesis, or an idea about the Zodiac case, and you thought, wow, that person is totally crazy. That person is batshit insane. And that they're, and I mean that, I mean that, crazy, insane, too far out for their own good. And then, have you ever heard um, someone talk about the Zodiac Killer mystery, and you thought, this person's a liar, this person's a fraud, this person is genuinely making this up, there's not an honest thing about them, they're doing this purely for profit, or um, maybe also for fame. With Jared Kobeck, I began to get the feeling that he is someone who is neither of the two, but he's paying very close attention. He seems like a balanced, level-headed individual, and I don't think that he is lying about all of his observations about the Zodiac Killer mystery. Instead, though, I think he is someone who has written books on numerous subjects, and he wanted to explore a new possible industry, if you will, emphasis on the word industry. Now, does that make him a grifter? Um, not necessarily, I mean, if he's telling the truth, but I'm only halfway through the book, and um, I'm really quite curious how the next book will play out. Um, so far, I think that the characterization of Lake Herman Road was rather inappropriate, or that he's making certain assumptions about the victims, which he shouldn't make, and he's using excessively flowery language, which is purely unnecessary. You know, in terms of un in terms of unnecessary claims, we would have to go to the next Zodiac Killer incident, the Lake Berryessa stabbing, which occurred on September 27th of 1969, which saw the death of Cecilia Shepard, who passed away two days later in the hospital from her injuries, and Brian Hartnell would go on to survive the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And in this book, Jarrett Kobeck just lays out the entire Lake Berryessa transcript, or a very large portion of it. In fact, the uh, true text of what happened at Lake Berryessa isn't even available to anybody because Brian Hartnell openly said there was a gap in the conversation that he couldn't remember. And I've also done a reading of the transcript here on this channel. That was actually done for the 50th anniversary of Lake Berryessa back in uh, 2019. But with um, that, though, there's just numerous pages that are taken up by the Lake Berryessa transcript. And there are also numerous pages before that that are talking about Charles Manson. And Charles Manson, of course, was operating in August of 1969. And not exactly Manson, but his followers, Tex Watson and Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten and maybe, maybe Linda Kasabian. And the pages in the book are just simply talking about Charles Manson and the crimes that were committed, the Tate-LaBianca murders, but not exactly how it's connected to the Zodiac Killer case in specific detail. So the point that I'm getting at is, this book contains large sections of filler, and I don't think Kobeck intended it that way, but that's the way it comes off. Just pages and pages of documents that, um, well, are 
already available to the public online, and maybe not for filling the book with the transcript, but also how about showing some ways, some direct influences on the Zodiac Killer from Manson, or how about the way that the media chose to portray Charles Manson versus the way that they're portraying the Zodiac Killer. A lot of those opportunities for commentary, I think, are missed by simply just making general comments about Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders for pages and pages in the book. I got ahead of myself there for a second because there is a section here on page 59 that is after the 408 cipher. I like killing people because it's so much fun, and I would like to read that. Well, um, firstly, let's just go to the end where it says, I will not give you my name because it will slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. And then there's the Z-18. The text does not give the killer's identity, nor does it author, nor does its author call himself the Zodiac. The line about the most dangerous animal is taken from a reference to Richard Connell's short story, The Most Dangerous Game, or its 1932 RKO-filmed adaptation. The plot goes like this. A big game hunter trapped on an island is trapped on an island where he's hunted by the Russian Count Zolov. I, th I thought his name was Zarov, but whatever. A descendant, Aristo, so bored with his social classes, normal debasements, that he invents new kicks. Zolov isn't hunting animals anymore, he's hunting humans. The story's characters don't sound much like the Zodiac's letters. Their dialogue is much about the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution. As anything else, the 1932 film tones this down, but there's not a lot of commonality between the spoken language and dialogue and the Zodiac's cipher. RKO filmed another adaptation of this called A Game of Death, which was released in 1945. Its major scene where the villain reveals that he's hunting people contains the following dialogue. Let me tell you, Rainsford, there is no game in the world that can compare to it for a moment. At last, I found something which, to pit my brain, as well as my skill, Something truly exciting, thrillingly competitive. The Zodiac didn't hunt men. Zodiac killed kids in cars. Darlene Farron was the least dangerous game. The only person whom Darlene Farron harmed was herself. The message contains the Zodiac's first flirtation with occultism. And I am going to jump ahead because there is also something that I think was uh, maybe even of a little bit more importance to this aspect of the most um, dangerous game. But the Zodiac is writing in the 1960s. Films aren't available on VHS or DVD or Blu-ray, or on-demand internet streaming. If they aren't caught in the original theatrical run, the best chance is a revival movie house. And in the ten years preceding the cipher, there is zero evidence of a most dangerous game revival. See, this is one of the parts, though, that I would like to genuinely dispute. Okay, so there's not an exact movie called The Most Dangerous Game, but firstly, Jared Kovac brings up the strong possibility that maybe the now-adult Zodiac Killer could have seen it when he was a kid in 1945. Or how about this? This is the more important part. Just because it wasn't titled The Most Dangerous Game, it doesn't mean that there weren't movies that were inspired by it. One of the clear 
clearest examples of this is the film Bloodlust from 1961, which I responded to on YouTube as well. I, I watched it for free on YouTube, actually. Perhaps it's still up at the time of this recording. And that's a retelling of the story, The Most Dangerous Game, and some people believe that that was a direct inspiration for the Zodiac Killer. And there are even two people in the film that strongly resemble Mike Mageau and Brian Hartnell. And also, the Zodiac Killer killed five people between 1968 and 69. The final confirmed victim of the Zodiac Killer was Paul Stein, who was murdered on October 11th of 1969. And um, the parts of this book about Paul Stein really aren't very strong in their discussions. But what's really odd about the film Bloodlust from 1961 is there are these five people who are more or less maroon, kind of shipwrecked, or they're unable to get their boat working, and they end up on these, this island where someone is hunting people for sport. It's a retelling of the most dangerous game in a 1960s sense. And Paul Stein was the oldest victim of the Zodiac, of the Zodiac Killer's victims. He was 29 years old at the time of his death. Everyone else was at least seven years younger. So, in the film Bloodlust, there's also an older person who is cut off from the rest of the group, from these other four people who go on to become victims. And this is just something, though, that I think isn't quite accurate in Jared Kobeck's um, presentation on the films that could have inspired the Zodiac. But I'm sure you're also wondering, is he going to talk about another film that could have inspired or the killer, and that would be Charlie Chan at Treasure Island, one that I was talking about on the most recent Zodiac Killer News Report. Yes, every Monday is Zodiac Monday here on this channel, but I do frequently do them these days as the Zodiac Killer News Report. And it says, one of the most plausible origins for the Zodiac Killer's trade name is the 1939 film Charlie Chan at Treasure Island. Charlie Chan is a relatively benign racial stereotype who works as a detective. <laughs> That's, um, as I said, he, he does have some good sentences. In Treasure Island, it is set in San Francisco, and his main antagonist is a psychic named Dr. Zodiac. It is said by people who haven't watched the film that Dr. Zodiac communicates with the San Francisco Chronicle through a series of letters. This isn't exactly true, but it's close enough. And I should point out, though, as someone who just recently watched the film and responded to it here on YouTube, you're right. I mean, Jarrett is right. That's not exactly true. There is a San Francisco Chronicle reporter in the film, and that's probably what people are thinking about. But one of the notes that was written by Dr. Zodiac is featured in the book. It says, I accept your challenge to a demonstration of my powers. I shall appear on your stage tonight, signed, Dr. Zodiac. And Dr. Zodiac is, of course, you know, involved in this murder mystery, and there are numerous Zodiac killer clues that are found in Charlie Chan and Treasure Island, way more so than the film Bloodlust from 1961, because with the film Bloodlust, they could have come from other sources, the most dangerous game in the story, right? Or even, I do mean that, the story, it doesn't, you don't even need the movie, but it's all indirect, like, maybe it's this, maybe the victim resembles this other victim, maybe there were five people and the Zodiac killed five people. I mean, it's a lot of guesswork. With Charlie Chan at Treasure Island, it appears there are direct influences. The name, 
the taunting letters, and it really does appear that that film may have directly inspired the Zodiac Killer. One of the final points that I would like to share from this book is discussing the occult connections to the Zodiac Killer mystery, and Kobeck is very clear to bring up that the Zodiac has been rumored, I repeat rumored, to have been inspired by Aleister Crowley, as well as perhaps some of the satanic movements of the 1960s, but I think even this book recognizes that it's not the biggest endorsement in the world of that particular theory. And he also talks about how there are numerous crimes throughout the 20th century and the 21st century where people have actually committed murders in ways in which there is some type of occult belief or even some far-out spiritual belief, such as um, slaves in the afterlife being reborn in paradise and those whom he has killed become his slaves. One example that Kovac uses is the Slender Man attempted murder where two girls lured another girl out into the woods, and they stabbed her 19 times because, um, what Kobeck says, they wanted to enter hell. But I, if I recall from doing an episode on that in the past, and it's been about three years, so excuse me, but I don't recall them exactly using that as the motivation for the Slender Man attempted murder. I mean, one thing I remember very vividly is that one of the um, people who knew these three girls said they did it because they wanted to enter a new dimension. Not exactly hell, but they wanted to enter the mansion that Slender Man lived in. Yes, Slender Man the Creepypasta, a fictional character from the internet. But they wanted to enter his spiritual world. And I think... Possibly, possibly Jared Kobeck may have been confusing the Slender Man attempted murder with a real-life true crime event, the murder of Elise Paler from uh, Arroyo Grande, California, where there were three teenage boys that murdered a girl and they tried to blame it on the lyrics of Slayer from the uh, metal band Slayer. They said that that drove them to kill, and though they were uh, Royce Casey, Jacob Delashmud, and Joe Fiorella, and, of course, of course, it wasn't true that the lyrics of the band Slayer made these three boys do anything. But they had this story that they wanted to create a portal into hell, and they wanted to become the biggest rock band or metal band in hell. They just wanted to be the biggest band in hell. And that isn't even something that's mentioned in all of the sources on the murder of Elise Paler. Only some of them. So... I think that, on a side note, both of these cases, the Slender Man attempted murder, the murder of Elise Paler, and to a certain extent, even the Zodiac Killer mystery, are often caught up with belief systems and these far-out spiritual practices, occult practices. Is there some witchcraft angle? Is there a satanic angle? But if somebody is committing murders then they are mentally deranged, and that is the primary focus, and that someone is dealing with some sort of pre-existing mental condition. And it's not simply that I think that numerous people in the psychological and psychiatric professions have stated that very publicly, and I've discussed their findings here on this channel, and that's why I tend to agree with that, that you don't blame the music, you don't blame the movies, you don't blame reading books about Aleister Crowley, or say, for example, The Most Dangerous Game, because people are supposed to have an understanding that 
they are works of either fiction, or even if they're not, even if they're not, what if it's something like music, like the lyrics of Slayer, or what if it's something like the writings of Aleister Crowley? You're supposed to recognize that that is just a book, and that book is not giving you consent to murder people. And most people probably understand this, and the ones who do not are, again, dealing with some type of deranged mental issue. But I think that I want to conclude this first part of the book discussion on Motor Spirit by Jared Kobach with the title, because I was reading my paperback copy of this one out in a public place, and some guy came by, and I think he was from Eastern Europe, I'm just guessing, but he said, Excuse me, what are you reading? Because, if anything, this book does have a rather unusual cover, definitely one of the more different covers for a Zodiac Killer book. And I said, I'm reading Motor Spirit by Jared Kobach, and he's like, what is that about? And I said, it's about the Zodiac Killer, and he's like, what is the Zodiac? And I was um, trying to think how exactly I would summarize that in a single sentence, and... Um, I was like, well, he was a serial killer who operated in California in the 1960s. But this guy then decided to ask me, why is it called Motor Spirit? Does he do something with cars? And I was thinking, well, you know, um, a little bit. Cars are found at most of the crime scenes. But at the time, I was unable to answer the question, why is the book called Motor Spirit? But on page 104 in the book, there is an explanation, again, in Jarrett Kobach's own uh, poetic sing-song, cigarette-and-glass-of-whiskey style of writing. One month and one day since Anne came to hate Ashbury, one of the freaks, a girl, whom everyone calls Sonny, thinks that Anne stole Sonny's boots. Anne didn't steal Sonny's boots. Sonny thinks that Anne stole Sonny's boots, and now all the freaks think that Anne stole Sonny's boots. Anne is brought into another apartment in Waller Street. Sonny thinks that Anne doesn't have, quote, motor spirit, unquote. Anne's, quote, too passive. Anne's not aggressive, offensive, or dominant, unquote. In other words, Anne doesn't have amphetamine psychosis. The freaks stage a turnout. They've got motor spirit. Sonny uses a knife to slit Anne's bra straps and underpants. Skinny's married to Sonny, and Sonny puts a knife to Anne's throat. Anne's skin. Anne doesn't want to be turned out. There's about 15 or 20 people in the apartment, hippies, bikers, everyone's watching. It's like a movie or a really groovy late-night show from television land. They say that Jesus saves, but not here, not now. Jesus just lets it happen. A girl named Chris beats and kicks a hand. Scavenger is a hustler, a male prostitute. Scavenger smoked two joints of Acapulco gold, drank a bottle of wine and shot a dime bag of speed. Scavengers got motor spirit. Scavenger shaves off Anne's pubic hair with an electric razor. The freaks beat Anne. Anne's in love with Blackie. And I'm not even going to uh, say the next sentences because they deal with some very bad things happening to people. 
But uh, if anything, I think that answers the question about what is motor spirit. I hope that was clear enough once again from page 104 in the book of the same name by Jared Kobach. And that was intentionally written out as a poem. I uh, I mean, I didn't add in the uh, pauses. There are some you know, real line spacings right there that give you some hints on how to read it. But you can um, share anything you'd like about uh, Jared Kobeck, and he is also going to be the guy that is going to bring us the Zodiac Killer suspect, Paul Doerr, D-O-E-R-R. And I'll be discussing that in future episodes here on Black Box Online Radio. It's just these early parts of the book Motor Spirit are going through the Zodiac facts of the case. And I do commend him as well for taking a narrative that most of us are familiar with. If you've made it to the far-off corner of YouTube, I'm sure... You've heard some of those details before, that the Zodiac attacked David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen when they were sitting in a car at Lake Harmon Road, and that the Zodiac attacked Mike Majot and Darlene Farron at Blue Rock Springs Park on the 4th of July. David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen may have been involved in intimacy, maybe not. They were ordered out of the car. Mike Majot was wearing three pairs of pants and five shirts, and these are very frequently discussed facts of the case, and of the cases, plural even, we could say. But I think Jared Kobach made some very interesting ways of presenting it to both new audience, like new readers, a new audience, and people who have some familiarity with the subject. I do not think he succeeded very well in getting a deep, true groundbreaking, earth-shattering understanding of the Zodiac Killer mystery. I'm only halfway through the book, and I'll do on, in, in part two, I will get to the end of it, but I don't necessarily see any groundbreaking claims. I mean, I see his take on the subject that, all right, the Zodiac Killer didn't use the pencil flashlight. He made that up, and he stole that idea from somebody else, whoever wrote that letter is anyway. I absolutely do not think it's a useful statement to say, well, they didn't make a movie called The Most Dangerous Game in 10 years, so um, therefore the Zodiac probably didn't watch it in a movie when they could have made a different film that was inspired by it, such as Bloodlust from 1961, which occurred only seven years before, before the first crime. I think that is a rather inaccurate statement, and as someone who... Um, is a writer on various other subjects. I'm really not getting the vibe that Jared Kobeck is the biggest true crime buff in the world, but rather someone who has somewhat of a general understanding as opposed to a deep understanding of all the things that he is citing. But if you would like to challenge me on any of these um, facts or statements or the assessment of the book Motor Spirit by Jared Kobach, uh, you can weigh in in the comments section down below. And I do have a final thing to share with you. A final thing. Like, when I was reading that Motor Spirit little poem paragraph, it's kind of half-written as a stanza, half as a paragraph, I was reminded of something that I want, I've never really talked about before, but somebody needs to do this. There should be a podcast dedicated to the dark secrets of California. If you go back to some of my old black box recordings from 2020, I even talk about how is Black Box Online Radio turning into the Shitting on California channel? Because I was talking about the Zodiac Killer a lot, as well as Charles Manson, as well as the Black Dahlia and George Hodel. So 
I really noticed that I'm just talking about all these terrible stories from California, and how about the murder of Elise Paler from Arroyo Grande? And I think that someone, it doesn't even have to be me, could make a really good podcast on just not only just stories from California, but how they could be connected, or some of the major um, networks that would be involved with these true crime cases. How about all the secrets of Hollywood? They're, they call it Holly Weird for a reason, and the um, interconnections between the film industry and the drug trade. And I would direct you to uh, look at some of my episodes on um, the murder of Roy Radin and the murder of June Mincher, which are discussed in the episode Zodiac Killer Bill Menser on there is some overlap between Hollywood and the drug trade in that one. And Bill Menser was actually the hitman who murdered Roy Radin and June Mincher in nineteen eighty three and eighty four respectively, but he is also a Zodiac killer suspect. So I think that um just dark secrets of California California in the shadows or something like that or what they don't want you to know about Cali, something um in that ballpark. I'm just throwing that out there because I think that would be really cool if somebody were to explore that particular subject in not only Hollywood, but also the politicians, the drug trade, everything, everything. Let me know what you think. And if you also have ideas for some type of podcast that you want to start, you can share in the comment section down below. Mostly uh, safe ground here when it comes to sharing ideas. But please, please give me your feedback on... Um, this book, Motor Spirit, or what you think about Jared Kobach as a writer. If you have read the book, you can give your take on the subject. If you have not, um, what really stood out to you in this discussion? And one more time, my name is Ned DeHaan, and anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always BlackboxNed88 over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.